This week on Q&A, Benjamin Ginsburg, professor of political science and chair of governmental studies at Johns Hopkins University. Professor Ginsburg discusses his book, What Washington Gets Wrong, the unelected officials who actually run the government and their misconceptions about the American people. Benjamin Ginsburg, author of What Washington Gets Wrong. Can you tell us your story that you open up your introduction with? Absolutely. This is a true story. And those who live in Washington have probably heard versions of this story. I was at a dinner party, and uh, sitting next to me was a pretty senior HHS executive, someone whom I had known for a long time, very nice person. And she said to me, well, what are you writing these days? So I said a colleague and I conducted a survey of Washington officials, because everyone's always surveying Americans to see what they think of Washington. We said, let's survey Washington to see what it thinks of America. So we surveyed uh, officials and what I'll call members of the policy community, that is the contractors who often, you know, are interchangeable with officials, people who work in think tanks, everyone involved in developing rules and regulations. So I said, we want to see what they thought of Americans. In fact, my original title for this book was What the Government Thinks of the People. But publishers never like my titles. They always say my titles are no good. All right. So at any rate, uh, I said that. So we wanted to find out what officials thought of us ordinary Americans. She said, well, that's kind of interesting. But she said, everybody knows that ordinary Americans are a bunch of idiots. Why do you need to do a survey to find that out? Well, to me, that confirmed everything that we found in the book. Uh, We found that public officials, the people who really govern this country, it's not Congress, it's not the president, it's bureaucrats. They write thousands of rules and regulations that have the force of law. And we found out that they don't think much of ordinary Americans. They're not exactly like us. They're wealthier, they're whiter, they're better educated. Um, They have different views on matters. And they think ordinary Americans don't really know very much. And that really the government should move according to its own ideas, not pay too much attention to what ordinary folks think. they felt the same way about Congress, by the way. And they didn't have that much you know, good to say about the president either. They thought that the only people who knew anything were other public officials. That's who they talked to. You say in your book that some 14 million Americans are associated with the government in some way. Some way, yeah. Can you break it down? Well, about um, between 2.5 and, and 3 million are actual federal civil servants. And then the rest consist of contractors. And as you know, in many agencies, the contractors outnumber uh, the actual civil servants, Department of Education, Department of Energy. If you walk into an office, you don't know who's who. They call it a blended workforce. So they're the contractors. Then in addition, uh, we have all of the uh, supporting groups, people who work in think tanks, in research foundations, uh, and even people who work in lobby groups that are connected to particular government agencies, environmentalists, 
who are closely uh, connected uh, with the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, for example. So all in all, you know, it's some 12 to 14 million people, and these are the people who actually govern this country. Everything that we learn in high school and college, maybe even including in my own textbook, I'm not sure, I'll have to look and see. Everything that we learn is not exactly right. Because what do we learn? We learn we elect a Congress, it makes the law, the president executes the law, the courts review the laws, but that ain't exactly how the system works. Uh, much of what we think of as the law consists of rules and regulations written by bureaucratic agencies, by bureaucrats who are not elected by anyone and who often serve for decades. You know, a lot of people are, uh, like to talk about term limits for members of Congress, which I think is a terrible idea, by the way. But, uh, you know, the average length of service of a member of Congress is eight years. Eight years. Whereas the average length of service for a senior non-elected official in our country is 26 years. So... Uh, if those who think that term limits are important, they're looking in the wrong place. As you know, there are very few factories of any kind around the Washington, D.C. area, but seven of the richest counties in the United States are all around Washington, making, on an average, more than most places in the United States. Why is that so? Well, first of all, federal civil servants are themselves well-paid. Uh, now, they say they're not. The, you know, the general line is that they're not as well-paid as people in comparable positions in the private sector. Well, there aren't exactly comparable positions in the private sector. Uh, when you look at the total package of pay, retirement benefits, plus the job security, which can't be beat except by tenured professors, uh, you know, this is a, a package of remuneration that is excellent. And in many families, you have two civil servants. And sometimes you have someone who's drawing military retirement and working as a civil servant. So that's, that's a starting point. The average salary, the average remuneration, according to the Office of Personnel Management data, is considerably higher than average Americans. Second, surrounding this group, we have lobbyists, lawyers, all the folks who work to try to get the first group to do what they want. Uh, you know, in the, this is a city where we have K Street. Uh, we have several hundred thousand people who work in the legal lobbying industry. You have government contractors. Uh, so surrounding the capital are uh, industries that don't produce smoke. They do produce a lot of hot air, but no smoke or pollution. And uh, this makes Washington and its surrounding counties, a very, very uh, wealthy area. And it, it affects the way that people here look at things. Um, I mean, they may read a series in the Washington Post about rural poverty, but they're not familiar with it. Uh, they talk to other people in what, you know, we call the social safe way, where everybody goes. Uh, they, they live in a bubble. They talk to one another. Everyone they know is pretty well off. The schools are very good. They're not familiar with America. One thing that we uh, did in our survey was to ask them basic questions about America. 
you know, I got tired of the all of these studies trying to show that Americans don't know anything. My favorite, you remember uh, Jay Leno used to do his jaywalking routine? And I remember one time they were out there asking people to name members of the Supreme Court. A lot of people named Judge Judy. Uh, this got a big yuck. Though, I, you know, Judge Judy and Justice Ginsburg could be confused. They kind of look alike. They went to the same high school. Did you know that? James Madison High School in Brooklyn, uh, along with Chuck Schumer, and a lot of, a lot of people went there. So at any rate, um, when we asked uh, federal civil servants to tell us about America, they didn't know that much. They weren't, didn't really have a good idea of what Americans' incomes were. Uh, they didn't have a good idea of what their level of education might be. They didn't have a good idea uh, of the uh, sort of racial and ethnic composition of America. Interestingly, too, they didn't have a good idea of what ordinary Americans thought. Now, if you look at the views of ordinary Americans, compare them to the views of civil servants, they're different, but they're less different than civil servants think. Civil servants think that ordinary Americans have views that are very, very different from theirs. Why? Well, psychologists have a concept they call false unique uniqueness. If you think someone is really dumb, you can't possibly think that they think the important thoughts that you think. You, th you think they must think other things. And that, that's what our civil servants uh, believe. Ordinary Americans can't possibly have the same exalted thoughts that we do. So uh, the survey was very revealing, beginning with differences in income and going on to the fact that, that federal civil servants don't really know much about America. In fact, one of the suggestions we make, and I'll get a little bit ahead of the game, is that we send more civil servants out to learn about America, that we rusticate them. Now, in many agencies, um, plenty of people work in regional and local offices. But at the policy level, hardly anyone steps outside Washington except to go on vacation. Uh, there's no reason why the top officials of the uh, you know, Department of Energy or the Department of Commerce need to be in Washington. Some people say they don't do much anyway, so let them spend time in the regional offices where they get to rub shoulders with ordinary folks. Because lots of studies show that bureaucrats who live among ordinary people develop more sympathy for them. Where do you, would we find you on a normal day? Where would you find me? Um, well, let's see, you might find me taking dance lessons, which I enjoy. Uh, you might find me walking my dogs and going to dog training, but you'd probably find me in the university. What university? Uh, Johns Hopkins. And what do you teach? I teach political science. You talk about this word in the book. If somebody listens to your last couple of minutes, they might say, wow, that guy's cynical. Well, I hope so. Cynicism is very, very important. You know, I tell students that cynicism is the beginning of wisdom uh, because you have to look realistically at the world of politics. You know, the Germans have a term, realpolitik. See, I got my R rolling. Realpolitik, which means a re realism. We cynics try to be realistic. 
we don't take what politicians say at face value. You know what? We found that they break their promises lots of times. They make up things. For them, words are weapons designed to garner our support. So we need to be able to understand what's really going on in politics. Politics is usually about power, money, status. It's not about truth, justice, and the American way. Well, let me I wish show, it was. Let me show some video right now to go along with what you just okay. said, and uh, we'll come back and get your view of this. There will not be, under any conditions, be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. It is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. We did not, repeat, did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages, nor will we. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Under the reform we seek, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your private health insurance plan, you can keep your plan. Period. It's all really taken from your book. <laughs> I recognize those scenes. <laughs> I always thought Lyndon Johnson's nose was getting longer as he spoke, but perhaps that's just uh, my imagination. Well, these are excellent um, reminders of something that, that's hard for, for us Americans to remember, and that is that to politicians, words have a different purpose than they do to you and me. When we talk, we exchange information, we might exchange emotions. We see that as the ordinary use of language. To a politician, words are weapons. Uh, they're the weapons of political warfare, and politicians choose their words, their ideas, with a view toward uh, capturing and exercising power. So words are often designed to persuade us of something that's in the politician's interest. Now, I would um, point um, viewers to the most recent presidential election, because I thought it was a remarkable exercise in realpolitik. Here we had politicians pretty nakedly pursuing power, right? There was no pretense at this point. Uh, they would say or do whatever seemed useful to win power, and if that turned out not to be useful, they would shift and say something else. Um, so, for example, Secretary Clinton uh, famously castigated Donald Trump for asserting that he might not accept the results of the election. Well, that was when she thought she was going to win. It was different when it looked like he was going to win. Um, so, I think um, this, those who view this election objectively, rather than through their partisan lenses, saw politics for what it was. It's a struggle for power in which words are weapons. And these three uh, videos that you showed us, you know, are videos of presidents lying because it was convenient to do so. Um, you know, the weapons of mass destruction, nobody thought they were there. Nobody in the White House thought they were there. But it, it seemed like a good thing to say. Um, 
the keep your doctor under uh, the Affordable Care Act. Well, nobody in the White House thought that was true, but it seemed like a good thing to say. So, uh, you know, we've all known people like that. People often at the heads of organizations are like that. They can change direction at the drop of a hat and show no embarrassment. So that's why I'm a cynic. And um, I'm a cynic because this is what I've observed. And I think if you're not a cynic, you're too easily taken in. So I recommend to everyone, be more cynical. You know, we always see in the press, oh, don't be too cynical. We can't be cynical. Who's more cynical than reporters? Right? So um, I think that in order to um, live in the political world, you have to understand what politicians are about. You know, in ancient Athens, they said that a citizen had to understand how to rule and be ruled, both. Well, in our country, when we teach children about politics, we really only teach them how to be ruled. We tell them, you know, you should vote and do your jury duty and whatnot, but we don't tell them much about what rulers do. And the Athenians felt that in order to be a good citizen, you had to actually understand the arts of politics, if only to protect yourself. So I think there's a lot of merit in their view. They weren't cynics, I guess, but they were realistic. Now, you've admitted to being a cynic, and a lot of uh, definitions of you online is that you're also a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Is that true, and how often do you find libertarians in the academic world? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. I I'm a uh, libertarian on some issues. I'll tell you, the guy who writes the Wikipedia article about me decided I was a libertarian, so uh, so there I am. Um, I'm I'm a libertarian on many issues, but as to the uh, because I I feel that um, you know years ago I took a class with Milton Friedman, and I thought you know there's something to what he says. Uh, that those folks who are spending other people's money are very incautious with it. And the government uh, is not always the best solution. Sometimes it's the problem. Um, but as to how many libertarians there are in the university, uh, well, I'll leave that to your guess, but there aren't hardly any. I mean, I, um, I think that most professors are liberal Democrats. Um, and uh, when universities hire faculty, they, you know, hire people like themselves. Uh, there was a, an interesting book uh, written last year in which um, to the two authors, whose name I, names I don't recall right now, surveyed uh, conservative faculty. So they had, to, had trouble finding any, and they interviewed people, and they reported that... Um, one person they interviewed was so afraid of being found out by his colleagues that they had to conduct a clandestine interview in the Arboretum where no one would see them. So there is uh, a shortage. You know, when universities talk about diversity, they quite rightly are interested in issues of race and ethnicity and gender, but intellectual diversity is not something that uh, uh, institutions of higher learning care much about. I'm sorry to say. How did you do this survey? Um, we sent out, uh, we, we obtained mailing lists and telephone directories from um, various civilian agencies and other organizations, 
and we sent out online about 2,500 questionnaires. And we got a pretty good response rate. We had about 850 respondents. And this, it was a long questionnaire. How I guess, long? Uh, it was a. It took about uh, 45 minutes to complete. It's in the book, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it's all in the book. The questionnaire is in the book. 80-some questions. Yeah, it's a very long questionnaire. Um, but, you know, this is a group that enjoys filling out forms, so they, they sat and filled them out. Now, if viewers think 850 isn't very many, um, you know, a national sample is usually only about eight, about 1,100 people, and that's, uh, th- those 1,100 represent 300 million. So our sample was quite large, and moreover, we checked it against the demographic data provided by the Office of Personnel Management, and our sample was spot on. It was, um, you know, a very, socially at least, a very good sample of the, of the group we wanted to study. You know, in national surveys, um, you know, viewers may recall from the 2016 election, sometimes the samples, when they weight them to account for different groups in the electorate, they throw them off because the current electorate may not be exactly the same as the previous electorate. In our case, that's not a problem. But you know, the, when you're talking about the civil servant, and that's a bureaucrat, is I, I assume that's what you mm-hmm. mean, they all come from somewhere else other than Washington. They do. They do indeed. So they've lived out there. They have. They've lived out there, but it's been a while. 26 years on average for many of them at the upper levels. That's a long time. Uh, So maybe they were from Boise, Idaho to begin with, but it's been a long time since they were back there. Um, And they, they lose their perspective. They tend to think like, dress like, everybody else in Washington. You know, uh, you're probably familiar with the idea of bureaucratic culture. Every bureaucratic agency has a culture. You know, in the uniformed services, there's the right way, the wrong way, and the Navy way. And in the Navy, you do it the Navy way or you're out. Same is true of every agency. Uh, if If you don't learn to share that agency's perspective, you're you're an outsider. You can't, you can't succeed. So generally, over a few years, careerists develop the perspective of their agency. Uh, it's almost inevitable. How does the government do when it comes to diversity compared to the rest of the United States? Oh, very poorly. The um, the civil service of the United the upper levels of the civil service are overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. Um, the rest of America is changing, but not our government. Why not? Uh, good question. First of all, the opportunities for change are less because people don't retire, you know, long, long career paths. And the other is that they tend to hire people like themselves. Um, the rest of us operate under rules that that make us more diverse, they don't. Why is it so hard to fire somebody in the government? Civil service rules make it virtually impossible. Not not utterly impossible, but they make it so cumbersome, it takes so long. Why? Why is this set up this way? To protect civil servants who wrote the rules. But why do they get to do it, unlike the rest of the United States? Oh, well, now you'd have to be cynical to answer that question, because they write the rules and they protect themselves. Um, they write different rules for us. 
you know, in most agencies, they don't they don't really try to fire people because it's too cumbersome. They transfer them. So you have civil servants who get transferred around and finally wind up. I mean, there are several offices where um, you have kind of all the rejects that get transferred in there, and they don't do much during the course of the day. What's the What are the politics of most civil servants? Uh, most are liberal Democrats. Notice, for example, that the, uh, there's been a lot of commentary about the um, Trump cabinet and sub-cabinet. The number of people who were drawn from the military and from business rather than from government. And the reason for that is plain and simple. Government agencies are overwhelmingly liberal and democratic. Uh, and if you want to staff up with Republicans, you go to the military uh, or you go to business. You can't recruit from the upper levels of the government. You get into the weeds in here with language that uh, I assume, I, I don't know the average person would have ever heard it before. I, and I'm just going to read some mm -hmm. of this stuff. You, you talk about the Administrative Procedure Act mm -hmm. of 1946. You talk about the Office of Information Affairs, the, uh, the, the Unified Regulatory Agenda. I'll tell you something. These are things that we need to know. These are things that people should be taught as part of civics. Because Why? these are critical to the way we're governed. For example, the Administrative Procedure Act is the Bible for regulatory agencies. When regulatory agencies write rules and regulations, these ha under the terms of the Administrative Procedure Act, they have to be published for what is called notice, for notice and commentary. They have to be published and they have to solicit comments. Um, and this is the basis for rulemaking in the United States. And rulemaking is the basis for our governance. You know, kids learn in school how a bill becomes a law through Congress, but they don't learn how a rule or regulation uh, is promulgated through the bureaucracy, which often is more important. Or you mentioned the Office of Information and Regulatory Assessment, OIRA. Well, this is a very, very important office in the White House Office of Management and Budget, an OMB, because it's through OIRA that presidents attempt to shape the regulatory and rulemaking agenda. OIRA reviews regulatory proposals from the agencies and issues regulatory prompts to the agencies telling them what the president wants. Again, this is part of how we're governed that students don't learn. Um, all they, I mean, all I, uh, they learn in civics is how a bill becomes a law. And what they learn about that is wrong, too. It's how a bill used to become a law. But they don't learn the basics of how we as Americans are actually governed. And if you want to know that, these terms that I mentioned shouldn't be obscure anymore. The APA, Administrative Procedure Act, OIRA, critical things in our governance. What's the 1979 Paperwork Reduction Act? <laughs> That's a piece of legislation which is, you know, the name is sort of funny. Um, small business was complaining that they were required to fill out too many forms. So Congress said, okay, we're going to have a, a paperwork reduction act, so they're not going to have to fill out so many forms. Actually, it led to more paperwork, as you, as you might imagine, but it was under the Paperwork Reduction Act 
that OIRA was created. You've got Executive Order 12291, uh, Centralized Presidential Oversight of Agency Rulemaking. That's right. Under Executive Order 12291, and again, this is something that people should know. What are executive orders? A lot of our government today is run by executive order, executive memorandum. You know, President Obama said he wasn't going to issue as many executive orders as President Bush had, so instead he writes memoranda. It's the same thing, but, you know, it lets you, lets you sort of weasel around it. Uh, executive Order 12291 was issued during the Reagan administration, and in that order, Reagan said that henceforward, rules and regulations promulgated by the bureaucracy would have to be sent to OIRA for review. When Clinton came in, he then went a step further and said from now on OIRA is going to send rules and is going to send proposals to the agencies which we want them to do. Now, OIRA is the president's tool for controlling the bureaucracy, a very important presidential tool. But it it is does not give the president any kind of absolute control. You know, de Tocqueville said, described the Roman emperor, he said his power is ferocious, but its reach is limited. And the same could be said of the president and the bureaucracy. When the president wants them to do something, by God, they're going to do it. But they do 10,000 other things that the president doesn't take any notice of. What impact did the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 have on this town or this government? Um, it, cre it enlarged the number of um, bureaucratic officials who were subject to presidential appointment. But that number is still small. Um, you know, when, <coughs> excuse me, when um, Trump came in, there was a lot of talk about how many appointments he could make. But the number is maybe 4,000 of various sorts. And I think it should be more. I think that if, uh, if an election is to affect the bureaucracy, presidents should be able to appoint more top officials. Uh, I don't know how many more. I don't agree with Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson said, any American can do any job in government. That's probably gone too far. But I think there are a lot more Americans who could carry out the people's will as expressed in an election. So I think the number of federal officials appointed by the president should be increased. So if President Trump said, come into the Oval Office, bring your book with you, mm -hmm. but you were given a few minutes to tell him what to be wary of, what would you say? Well, I would tell him that in relation to the bureaucracy, that bureaucratic agencies march along their own trajectories. They march according to their own drummers. If a president interferes with them, and they regard it as interference, a president and his appointees interfere, they will roll with the punch and try to resume the course that they've set for themselves. Once a bureaucracy is created, it's very, very hard to change it, very hard to take control of it. Um, you know, look at, uh, this is a terrible example, and people will be mad at me for using this, but Mao Zedong decided 
he was going to attack the Chinese bureaucracy. And here he was, the absolute ruler. And he launched a cultural revolution to uproot the bureaucracy. Well, he's gone and they're still there. Uh, so it's very, very difficult. So my advice to any president is to try to appoint individuals who understand the agency but don't like what it's doing. You know, change agents, as they say. And Trump has done this. I mean, several of the individuals he's appointed to head agencies were enemies of the agency. And I'd say that was a start. But the agencies eventually wear them down. You have to be very wary of this. As you know, there's a list of some 15 administrative agencies um, under the Administrative mm -hmm. Procedures Act. They're not all under that act. Yeah. But what what is different about that agency, say, than the, the Department of uh, State? Well, the Department... I mean, give yeah. me an example yeah, of an administrative the, agency. Okay. Um, the Department of State... The Department of Defense; these are important agencies, but they don't issue, they don't engage in in rulemaking aside from their internal housekeeping rules. So they don't issue rules that affect you and me. Whereas, say, the Department of Education, um, the, the the various federal social agencies, they issue rules that have the effect of law on you and me. Uh, for example. Even NOAA, the National Oceanographic and, uh, I forget, the weathermen, you know, uh, they have um, jurisdiction over several pieces of federal legislation where they issue rules and regulations. So, for example, NOAA administers the something called the Marine Mammals Protection Act, which you and I have never heard of, right? But... Uh, Recently, someone was sent to prison for violating a NOAA regulation under that act that prohibited harassment of marine animals. What did this person do? He ran one of these whale-watching boats, and he whistled at a humpback whale, which was deemed Went to be... Went to prison over that? He did indeed. He did indeed. Whistling at a humpback whale harassment of a marine mammal. You think this is crazy, right? Well, <laughs> let me read this from your book. Yeah. According to one study, 131 major, parentheses, generally defined as having uh, a likely impact of $100 million or more, rules and regulations adopted by the federal agencies between 2009 and 2012 impose $70 billion in new costs on the American public. How do you know that? Um, well, I didn't do this study, so I'm citing... The, but how would anybody know that? Yeah. Well, economists try to um, look at the impact of the rule on the behavior of those affected by it. So in this case, I think it was a, a rule governing corporate behavior. So what did corporations do to follow this rule? Well, one thing they have to do is often to staff up. For example, for example in the banking industry... One of the reasons that small banks have kind of disappeared is because under Sarbanes-Oxley, the, the quantity of staffing you need, the legal services, the accounting services that you need to comply with the act is so substantial that only big banks can afford it. So that's a cost of regulation. Or 
Do you have to use one kind of fuel rather than another? Environmental regulations impose costs. So, you know, people who study these, ru- these rules kind of estimate the costs. They're studied by um, private economists. They're also studied by the Congressional Budget Office and by the White House Office of Management and Budget, and a consensus figure emerges. The cost of regulation is very high. In fact, I saw a piece recently um, you know, in the context of talking about, about why it is that the U.S. has lost manufacturing jobs in the past uh, decade or so. Uh, one study suggested that about a million jobs were lost because of regulatory costs um, that became a factor in corporations shifting those jobs overseas. You, you uh, write, perhaps the public might learn why most or why some cynical Washington observers of the Department of Education say, with apologies to Churchill, that seldom in the course of human events has so little been accomplished by so many. Oh, that was a little bit of snark on my part, wasn't it? Mm. Um, There are some agencies in Washington, that being one of them, that most people who live in this town think don't do much of anything. Uh, They do very little per person. Now, some agencies are extremely hardworking, no question. But there are others, and I would say education, energy, commerce. If Rick Perry had remembered the three he wanted to eliminate, those were, I think, were the three, where the, the output isn't that great. No one quite, this is a local prejudice, you know, no one quite knows what they do there. So, what would you say to somebody that is deeply involved in Washington and says, You have absolutely no idea what you're talking they about? They tell me that all the time. Who does? People who work in Washington officials. What do they say, though, when you say that's crazy? They say that um, you have no idea how hardworking we are. You have no idea how much we do for the people of the United States. You have no idea how much we value the views of Americans. To which I say, uh, I do have an idea, unfortunately, and you don't value what Americans think. Had anybody ever done a survey like yours before? No, this is the first time this has been done, and we're going to make our uh, our questionnaire and its results available. People can look at what we did, and hopefully people can move on from there. Why did 800-plus people sur- respond to your survey? Isn't that an interesting question? You know, in the polling business... Um, when you do telephone polling, most people don't want to respond. They don't want to, have, they don't want to waste their time. My view is that in the case of this survey, first of all, now I'm going to be snarky again, will you forgive me? A lot of these people had nothing much to do, so this was kind of an amusement. And second, um, people who work in Washington are self-important. Not unlike professors, I admit we're self-important too, but people who work in Washington wanted to share with us their views because they thought that what they did was very important. But what determined for you that they think Americans are idiots? Idiots is too strong a word, but we asked them uh, a number of questions that address that. We, think, we asked them, do you think, who do you think is competent? Um, and they thought ordinary folks weren't very competent, didn't know very much. Do you think ordinary Americans know uh, anything about, and we gave them about 10 different questions, and their answers were generally, no, not very much, nothing at all. Uh, So from our survey, we got the very strong conclusion 
that public officials don't have much regard for ordinary Americans. But in your book, um, when you talk about all of this, the language that's used here, why would Americans know what this is when you, you know, all these different acts and rules? You said that, I think on average, 900 rules are um, promulgated, promulgated yeah. every year. Yeah. Well, you know, Americans wouldn't necessarily know the details, but we asked at a very general level, do you think, what, how much do you think ordinary Americans know about um, economic affairs, international affairs, uh, unemployment, you know, just basic things? And across the board, the, uh, the officials in our survey said, no, not much. They don't know much about those. Now, I'll tell you something. Um, I will submit that public officials do know more than ordinary folks about all of these things. There's no question in my mind. But uh, it doesn't justify this feeling that we shouldn't pay attention to them, which we get from the survey. When I go to the doctor, I hope that they know more about medicine than I do. If they don't, I'm in big trouble. If I have to have dealings with an attorney, well, they better know more about the law than I do. What I'm counting on <clears throat> is that the doctor, the lawyer, the accountant has a sense of fiduciary responsibility to me. Their responsibility is to find out what my needs are and to help me you know, achieve those in the best possible way. If my doctor said, well, I, I really don't care what you think, here's what you need to do, that wouldn't be very good. If my lawyer said, well, you're an idiot, I don't want to hear any more from you. Here's what you need to do. That would be a breach of their responsibility. And I believe that federal civil servants also have a civic responsibility. And their civic responsibility is to learn about Americans, not to not know, and to find out what Americans think. Well, what would be different, though, for Americans if they found out? And let me just add to that. You have 535 people that are elected every year to Congress that supposedly represent the people. Mm -hmm. And you have a president that's elected every four years. And isn't it their responsibility? Oh, it is. But, but let me... First of all, we did survey congressional staffers. Okay? Congressional staffers knew a lot about the people because they you know, are in the electoral system. They meet with people. Uh, they had a very good idea of what the public thought. Spot on. Absolutely. Members of Congress need to know. And, you know, despite all the uh, disparagement, they do know. Most members of Congress have a damn good idea what their constituents think. Now, you know, they don't always agree, but they know what their constituents think. And they know their job is to, you know, figure out how to at least try to implement things that their constituents want. The problem here is that Congress doesn't have as much control over the bureaucracy as it should. The president doesn't have as much control over the bureaucracy as he should. Who's to blame for that? Who's to blame for that? Well, I would say that over the decades, the president and Congress in particular have surrendered power. You know, over the decades, Congress has surrendered power after power to the executive. And why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, there are reasons 
going back to the time of the New Deal, when um, you know President Roosevelt was very impatient with the legislative process, and under his um, regime, Congress began to enact pieces of legislation that were very broadly drawn. Um, they violated, here's another thing that Americans should know, the non-delegation doctrine. So if, if viewers don't know what that is, they should look it up. It's very important. The non-delegation doctrine is the idea that the power exercised by Congress was given to it by the American people. And Congress cannot, in turn, give that power away to anybody else. So what did that mean, practically speaking? It meant that when Congress wrote a law, the law had to be very explicit about what the executive branch could do. But during the Roosevelt era, that doctrine was lost sight of. The courts turned away from it. And so Congress can write very broadly drafted pieces of legislation uh, that the executive branch will then implement through its own rules and regulations that may have nothing to do with what Congress thought. Okay, there's a lot of leeway. And the courts have been guilty too because the courts have a principle of deference. They defer to administrative agencies. They say only the agencies know what the law really required. And it's not our, our job to question them. So, you know, you have agencies writing rules and regulations under laws that might have been written 80 years ago. So who's to say what Congress really wanted? You know, just the other day, the Department of Labor wrote new regulations under the Taft-Hartley Act. Now, uh, viewers if, uh, probably know the Taft-Hartley Act was written in 1936. Uh, but it still becomes a source of power for an agency today. And the courts will say, well, you know, the agency knows what the law is, so it's their job. So that, that's one factor. Uh, another is that Congress has not uh, stepped up to the plate when it comes to oversight. Legislative oversight of the executive branch is very difficult. It's unglamorous. It's hard work. And you know, Congress, most members of Congress only get into the oversight game if something bad happens. People call it fire alarm oversight. If the alarm bell is ringing, then they'll, they'll hold hearings. But day-to-day -day oversight, that, that's kind of a lost art. When did you first get interested in that? And this is like book 24 for you? Uh, something like that, yeah. When did I get interested in this? No, not, not this no. book particularly, but you, you've written a lot about government over the years. I, it was inspired by the university, which is a huge bureaucracy in which the faculty has no power. Which one? Hmm? Which university? For, uh, I, I, for me, it was Cornell, Johns Hopkins. I mean, this has been uh, happening over the years, and it colored my view of the rest of the world. Uh, that's perfectly, perfectly honest. But I did write a book on the university called The Fall of the Faculty, which shows this phenomenon in the university setting. But that's what really started me thinking about bureaucracy and its evils. Um, you know, like everyone else, I was taken in by the sort of civics book interpretation of the world. Uh, we we've elect representatives and they write the law. Um, but I, you know, as I looked at the, uh, the real world, as I cynically looked at the real world, I saw it's not so. I wish it was so. I really do. You know what they say, a cynic is a disappointed idealist. So I'll confess to that. 
Uh, the real world was one in which uh, we weren't governed by people we elected as much as we were by people who were appointed and served year after year after year and marched according to their own drummer. Uh, one of our findings, you know, we looked, to, we, we looked at the regulatory agenda over the course of a year, and we compared it to public opinion, we compared it to the legislative agenda, to the president's agenda, as, ex as expressed in orders and uh, whatnot. And, you know, we found that the regulatory agenda was highly correlated with the attitudes of bureaucrats was not associated with anything Congress wanted. It was not associated with what ordinary Americans wanted. It wasn't even associated with what the president wanted. The regulatory agenda could be predicted by the attitudes of bureaucrats. And I would say to viewers, that's not how to run a democracy. That's not democratic government as far as I'm concerned. Well, the, your book, and you point out, I'll read you. Uh, yeah, okay. uh, Bit here. In the same vein, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Dealers viewed the welfare institutions and entitlement programs they constructed more in terms of political power than moral principle. Mm -hmm. And then later on, on the other side, you say a Republican example of the instrumental character of political principles is the GOP emphasis on religious and moral appeals over the past quarter century. What's partially in your book is to suggest that the politician on both sides will do whatever they have to do to get elected. Well, that's for sure. And I mean, but how, again, why not the administrative agencies who sit there, as you say, 26 year average, they're working off of the law and they're not working off of whether or not they get elected next time. Why well, wouldn't that be a better position? You know what? In? You know what? There's something um, good about politicians working to get elected. Because if you're, if you're working to get elected, you have to pay some attention to what voters think, even if all you want to do is manipulate them. You still have to pay attention to them. Uh, our federal bureaucracies are insulated from all that. They don't know what people think, and they don't care what people think. Now, again, maybe they do know more than the average American. By the uh, way, that's not every civil servant. No, not everyone, but, but on the aggregate. We're not talking about individuals. Uh, we're talking about the aggregate. So on the aggregate, um, they uh, don't think Americans know very much, and they don't, they don't really care. And that, that's what makes them different from my doctor or my lawyer. Okay, if, my, if I perceive that my doctor doesn't care about me, and that can't be true because my wife is my doctor, but I, so I know she cares. But if I perceive that my doctor doesn't care about me, I might get a different one. Well, if a government agency doesn't care about me, you know, forget it. They just don't care. And moreover, uh, attorneys, physicians, accountants, they're all taught that they're supposed to pay attention. i got to ask you, is your wife really a doctor? Yeah. <laughs> so she is your doctor. She is. Well, yes, she is. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, Chicago. This is another part of my education in cynicism. I grew up in the great city of Chicago under the reign of the uh, late Mayor Richard J. Daley. And I remember Mayor Daley, was, was, it was said that Chicago had, didn't have bike paths. So they put up signs, even on Lakeshore Drive. It was now a bike path. It was said Chicago didn't have hills. City sanitation workers created piles of garbage, put, uh, you know, rolled out grass over them. And Mayor Daley said, we now have more hills than any other city in the country. So if that doesn't make you cynical... <laughs>
What were you, what was your family like? What did your parents do? Did you have brothers and sisters? Uh, I am from a working class family, uh, but I had no brothers and sisters. Who had the biggest impact on you politically in your life early? You mentioned Milton Friedman, did he? Actually, the person who had the greatest impact was um, a late, uh, very famous professor of international relations named Hans J. Morgenthau. And he was the father of the realist school of international relations. And I remember as a kid, I was an undergraduate sitting in his class. Um, I was too timid to ever raise my hand. But I thought, wow, he has a vision of the world that is so strong, so important. Um, I want to try to learn how to think like he does. I would suggest to many college students, freshmen in particular, that they sit quietly and not voice their opinions. They don't know anything. I sat very quietly and learned. One of the things that we haven't talked about this at all, it kind of weaves through your book, is Aristotle and Confucius and Plato and Diogenes uh, and uh, Nico, if I can pronounce it right, McKeon, ethics. Yeah. What's that all about from your standpoint in Athens and Athenian yeah. uh, you thinking? Know, very often when, when we um, try to learn, it's important to go back to first principles because, you know, you, you look at the first principles from which we've often, you know, diverged, gotten confused, and the ancient Athenians uh, were the first to encounter democracy, and Plato and Aristotle wrote about what is, what is democracy? What is this all about? So, you know, Plato uh, and other Athenian thinkers thought that officials should be subject to the annual audit. And all public officials in Athens were audited every year. And it wasn't uh, simply a financial audit, but the popular assembly, the ecclesia, would hear uh, competing views about whether this official did a good job or not. And even priests and priestesses were subject to the audit, which would be an interesting idea. Um, and uh, officials who were found wanting were dismissed. Now, that audit, um, you know, is sort of the ancestor of our election. But we've exempted most of our officials from it. And um, I think that's a mistake. Andy Jackson had, you know, had a good idea that he went too, went too far with it. But public officials need to some extent to be in the political arena. What is your guess? And I know uh, you may not even want to touch this one, but what is your guess President Trump uh, will, um, after four years when he looks at this government, what will he have accomplished? Not not any particular issue, but based on what you know about what, what he's running into. Well, that, that would only be a guess. Um, based on his cabinet appointments, he obviously plans to take on the bureaucracy, to change the way Washington does business, to uh, sharply reduce the quantity of regulation uh, that... Um, that agencies are able to produce, perhaps cut back on existing regulations. Can, can he accomplish that? Um, and no can one, these businessmen, no mostly men, not all, uh, who have been appointed to these jobs and made a lot of money, they're used to just saying, I want this to happen, and it happens. It's going to be very hard. Um, 
I think for the for for them to succeed, one thing that has to happen is that civil service rules have to be changed, uh, so that if civil service uh, employees can be disciplined and fired. Under the present rules, they just hunker down and refuse to do um, what uh, you know a radical government is asking them to do. So I think one thing you'll have to do if if he's serious is to try to get Congress to rewrite the civil service rules. Who was responsible for the civil service rules being what they are today? Well, it began... More than anybody? Yeah. Well, it began... It, it wasn't a person. It was a political movement. Uh, the progressive movement in the uh, late uh, 19th century, the progressives um, wanted to destroy political parties. Uh, the progressives were sort of an elite group, upper-middle-class professionals, and they saw political parties as strengthening, you know, these immigrants, the, the Irish and the Jews and the Italians. They used parties to rise to power. The progressives, who were native stock Americans, wanted to weaken parties. And one way they, they looked to weaken parties was to eliminate the patronage machines that parties depended on uh, to control elections. So to them, civil service... Uh, preventing the political parties from hiring and firing government employees uh, was a way of uh, destroying the political parties. It was pretty successful, but um, I think you know the parties don't. You know the the idea of too much party power that's long gone. Um, I think it's time to readdress civil service. It's that the civil service as it stands has outlived its usefulness. Besides this book of the twenty four you've written so far, which one was the most popular? Fall of the Faculty, which uh, explains how administrators have taken over and wrecked the university. What's your next book about? Well, I'll tell you, but you'll think it's weird. I'm writing a book on time travel. I'm writing a book, show, and I'm doing it with, with my colleague Jen Bachner again. We're showing, using surveys, the ways in which competing political forces rewrite history, imagine the future, and try to use the past and future to control the present. So I say it's a book about time travel. The results of the survey are in this book that yes. we've been talking about, and the name of this book is What Washington Gets Wrong, the unelected officials who actually run the government and their misconceptions about the American people. Our co-author, uh, Jennifer Bachner, and our guest has been Professor Benjamin Ginsburg from Johns Hopkins University. Thank, Thank you, you very much, sir. Delighted. For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. 